Hello everyone, this is Montgomery County Today, and I'm Durley with the Public Information Office. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast will feature an audio recording of the first New River Valley Public Health Task Force COVID-19 virtual town hall meeting. This town hall took place on Wednesday, May 6th, and the panelists include local representatives from healthcare, including Dr. Noel Bissell, director of the New River Health District. Good evening, and welcome to the first installment in a series of six virtual town halls being presented by the New River Valley Public Health Task Force. We appreciate you welcoming us into your homes or wherever you may be viewing this event. You will learn as we move through our program, the New River Valley is blessed with leaders who care deeply about our communities and they truly work well together. As a result, our citizens should feel confident as we collectively navigate COVID-19 in the New River Valley. My name is Kevin Bird, and I'm the Executive Director of the New River Valley Regional Commission. And I have the pleasure of serving as moderator for the virtual town hall series. The New River Valley Public Health Task Force, I referenced earlier, has been hard at work since early March, aligning resources and deploying strategies to support the public health needs of our region. Nearly three months ago, local law enforcement, fire and rescue organizations, hospital and public health officials, county, city, and town managers, local public information officers, education officials, and others, with an unprecedented level of collaboration, began to develop and activate regional plans for the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, the New River Valley Public Health Task Force has been working through phase one mitigation, providing increasing levels of testing to all communities in the region, and securing testing resources and protective equipment for frontline medical and public safety personnel. Each week since March, the task force has provided flexible, adaptable, scalable drive-through test sites across the New River Valley with faster turnaround for test results. The task force also prioritized clear and consistent messaging and an abundance of public information, a result of which is this six-week series of virtual interactive town halls which begins tonight. Our series begins with the topic of healthcare. The panelists assembled this evening are directly involved with decisions being made to assist the New River Valley through COVID-19. The questions they will be addressing were submitted by residents across the region prior to tonight's town hall. For information about the series and to submit questions for future panels, please visit www.montba.com forward slash NRV Town Hall. You may also submit live questions via Twitter by using the hashtag NRVStrongerTogether. We'll answer them as we're able with time permitting. As I introduce each each panelist, they will briefly overview their role with COVID-19. First up, we have Bill Flattery. He is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Carilion New River Valley Medical Center. He also serves as Vice President of Carilion Clinic, Western Region. Bill? Thank you, Kevin. I want to start by thanking our local health department led by Dr. Noel Bissell. Our health department is extraordinary and is a shining example for other health departments across the country. We're lucky to have you, Noel, and I appreciate your leadership and your caring and compassion. I also want to thank and acknowledge Anthony Wilson, our Blacksburg Chief of Police, for his foresight and leadership in establishing the New River Valley Public Health Task Force in February. The coordination and cooperation I've seen through the task force 
epitomizes what is good about living and working in the New River Valley. You know, these are strange times for all of us. The virus has disrupted our lives in ways that we could not have imagined just a few months ago. Hospitals have always been the refuge for a suffering community, but we had to ask our patients to stay away out of concern for their safety. We stopped doing non-emergent surgeries and radiology studies. We pivoted our outpatient practices to focus on telemedicine, accomplishing nearly 80,000 virtual visits in two months' time. People stayed away from our emergency departments. Our volumes are down between 40 and 70%, depending on the services that that are offered. I worry that people have put off needed care. We are now reopening services with the governor's permission. We are doing it in a safe and thoughtful manner, and I look forward to welcoming people back to our hospital campuses as we continue our healing mission. Thank you for allowing me to be a, a participant on this panel. Thank you, Bill. Our next panelist is Dr. Charles Bissell. He is a section chief for Western Region Surgery at Carilion Clinic. I think we got you on mute still. I think you're still on mute there, Dr. Bissell. My lips are moving. All right, Kevin, sorry, thank you. Uh, My role on the panel is to be the liaison uh, uh, for the task force in Carilion. So, you know, I go back and forth and then help represent that way. Great. Thank you. Next, we have Dr. Dave Roberts. He is the chief medical officer with the Community Health Center of the New River Valley. Uh, Thanks, Kevin. Um, Like everybody else, I'd like to extend my thanks for being included in the panel. Um, The Community Health Center has got three clinics uh, where we provide primary care, behavioral health and dental uh, care. And my role really is managing the medical part of our response to this uh, COVID pandemic. Great. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. Next, we have Alan Fabian. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Lewis Gale Hospital, Montgomery. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I would also like to echo the the thanks to the New River Valley Task Force, uh, Dr. Bissell uh, and Anthony Wilson, Chief Wilson, and doing all the great leadership that they provided for our community. It makes a difference when these type of leaders step up um, and certainly protect the resources we have to protect our our community and our our constituents. Uh, So I work for Lewis Gale Regional Health System. Uh, It's a four hospital system in this area. And and our focus has been not just to uh, prepare for a pandemic and take care of patients who may have COVID virus, but also to create a space where we can protect and take care of patients who don't have the virus. Uh, And so that's been a a large focus is to prepare the community to continue to give people who have chronic diseases a place to to go get their health care. Thank you, Alan. Next, we have Dr. Billy Cox. He is a hospitalist medical director for Lewis Gale Hospital, Montgomery. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Billy Cox, and I'm the uh, hospitalist medical director at Lewis Gale Montgomery Hospital. I've been here almost 13 years uh, serving uh, this community, which I'm very, very proud of. Uh, also, uh, I'm the uh, internal medicine residency program director. Uh, I've been a member of the uh, NRV task force, uh, and I really appreciate the support of not only everyone on this panel, 
but for uh, other leaders in the community. Uh, my primary specialty is hospital medicine. And so uh, myself and my colleagues, um, as well as nursing staff and others in uh, the hospital, uh, have been on the front lines uh, helping treating patients with uh, COVID-19. So I appreciate you having me on this panel. Thank you, Dr. Cox. Next, we have James Pritchett. He is a licensed clinical social worker and executive director of New River Valley Community Services. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate the introduction. Uh, as you said, I work for New River Valley Community Services, and we're the public provider of behavioral health care services for um, the New River Valley. Uh, we have several independent clinics uh, throughout the New River Valley, and our primary responsibility is to make sure services um, people have access to behavioral health care services, whether that's a mental health issue, a developmental disability, or substance use disorder. And we all know during times of a crisis, those kind of issues don't take a back seat. And sometimes they even become more prevalent uh, during a crisis. So we're here to make sure those needs are taken care of. And we're glad to be a part of this team and work together to try to address our community's concerns. Thank you, James. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Noelle Bissell. She is a director of the New River Health District with Virginia Department of Health. Thanks, Kevin. So my role is um, as the director of the health district to be VDH's representative here in um, our region. We are available as a resource for our community members, our community partners, uh, to help provide guidance during this time as new guidance becomes available, which is pretty much a daily changing thing. We have coordinated the testing effort in the New River Valley, and then we also get all of the positive results. So we coordinate the contact tracing and the follow-up and recommendations for ongoing testing, quarantine and isolation in the New River Valley as well. Great. Thank you, Dr. Bissell. Well, thanks to each of our panelists for joining us this evening. Um, they're gonna be providing insight on the response to COVID-19 in the New River Valley. We're gonna start off with a general overview of COVID-19 from Dr. Bissell at the Health District to help frame our discussion this evening. So COVID-19 is a virus, it's a respiratory virus, it's a novel virus, meaning we haven't seen it in our communities before. It's never been seen. Um, it usually is spread by droplets um, that can be spread by coughing or sneezing or much less so by contaminated surfaces. Um, we have seen that it has spread very quickly and the reason it has spread very quickly and very widely is that it is a novel virus so we don't have any immunity to it. There is no herd immunity from prior exposure and there is no vaccine available to provide that immunity. So that's the biggest issue with it. it it's unlike a, any infection that we've seen before during this time. Um, I'll, I'll go on to just talk about how we detect the virus. We know that the main symptoms of the virus are respiratory. It causes uh, shortness of breath, coughing, difficulty um, with secretions, breathing, um, sore throat, and it can cause a pretty bad pneumonia, which is what um, gets people into real trouble where they end up in the hospital, and that's where we see the most severe cases. Uh, it does affect other uh, organ systems. It can affect the heart. Um, people have been presenting with heart attacks and things. Um, it causes the blood to clot a little bit more, and um, so it can be seen in people who have strokes and some other uh, uh, some other conditions. 
it also has a lot of other manifestations that we're just learning about. Uh, every day, every week, we learn more about how this virus presents. Uh, it was first identified in the end of December when it um, was first uh, noted by Wuhan, China. Within a week, we had already done the genomic typing on it, so we knew uh, the genomic sequence on the virus. And at that point is when we started looking for ways to identify it. Uh, right now, there are two ways that we look at trying to um, identify people who have been exposed to COVID-19. Uh, the most common one right now is the nasopharyngeal swab, which is a molecular test that actually looks for the virus itself. Um, and that tells if someone is infectious. Uh, the other one is an antibody test. Those are very new. Um, they're um, not quite honed and, and we don't really know their utility at this point because we're finding that this virus does not behave like a lot of typical infections do. But the antibody is not the virus. That's the protein that your body produces in response to an infection. And usually when we follow the antibody, we look for a level of immunity that develops as a result of an infection. Um, so when we're in the midst of it right now, we really want to know that molecular test result because that's going to tell us if there is virus present and somebody is actively infectious. Okay. Well, thank you. Based on the volume of questions we've received prior to the town hall this evening, it's apparent that testing is really in the forefront of many people's minds. So Dr. Bissell at the Health District, can you start off by overviewing the testing in the region and the types of tests that are available? So we um, at the health district, the, the main test that we are doing is the PCR because that's the one, that's the molecular test for the virus itself. And, and as we're looking at uh, the disease prevalence in our community, um, we, we want to know how many people are actually carrying the virus and potentially infecting others with the virus. So that's the nasopharyngeal swab. Um, as everybody knows, testing initially was very challenging. There were some difficulties with the first tests that were developed, uh, and then they were slow to be produced. Um, we are catching up. Uh, we're still not to the point where everybody can get tested or everybody needs to be tested. Um, so we had some screening criteria that we had to use initially. Um, and, and it still goes up and down based on availability and also uh, based on lab capacity. We have to have a lab to send the test to. So uh, we have to have the supplies to conduct the test. And based on the availability, we're able to offer our testing sites and we're able to, to offer testing to as many people as we can. The antibody test, um, again, that's something that we're learning a lot about. It's not a typical antibody response. We've partnered with Virginia Harm Reduction Coalition to offer antibody testing at our sites. Um, and people tend to want to prefer that because it's just a finger stick versus the swab in the back of the nose. But because it's not as reliable, we really can't just offer that solely. So we're offering it uh, in conjunction with the molecular test, the nasopharyngeal swab. And then we also look at somebody's clinical history, when they've been sick, how sick they were, what symptoms, how long ago, if they're still sick. And we try to paint a picture of the evolution from the potential exposure, the time of infection, how long they were infectious and symptomatic, and then on to recovery and whether or not they've developed the antibodies. Um, is testing currently available for those who do not have symptoms and are unaware of any contact with people who have tested positive for COVID-19? So right now in the New River Health District, um, we've been very fortunate. Our localities have offered tremendous support 
uh, financially as well as resources that yes, we are able to offer very broad testing. Um, I, I can't offer testing to every single individual, but we at this point are, have opened up our testing to the people who are symptomatic, people who are contacts of known COVID cases, and people who just want to know. Today, we were out at Giles High School testing and we tested 137 individuals, many of whom weren't symptomatic, but just wanted to know because there, there is a substantial percentage of our population that is probably infected and, and does not know they're infected, what we call asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Um, because of the symptoms that present with this disease, and we know that, that many people don't progress to a full-blown pneumonia or respiratory failure, they may assume it's just a common cold, or right now we're in allergy season, so they may assume it's just allergies. So we are able to offer testing pretty broadly right now. Um, as long as we have the lab capacity, we have the supplies and the resources to do it. Um, we expect that we may have to um, go back and forth with it, as we see how many people want and need testing and, and as we see the outcomes of investigations from our positive cases. Thank you. I have a follow-up here for folks representing our hospitals. Can you speak to the testing that's taking place at your facilities? Sure, I'll, I'll start uh, at Lewis Gale. We, we struggled early on with some of the testing mediums uh, and so we we're able to get multiple vendors to provide the tests. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Bissell and the, and the New River Valley Task Force to be doing the outpatient testing. Although we're not doing general outpatient testing at the hospital, with the three vendors we have, we're able to test all of the inpatients uh, and symptomatic patients that we need to test through the emergency room or on the inpatient side. Thank you, Alan. It's been similar on the Carillion side as well. Uh, we have been able to test anybody that, that really needed a test. At, at first, uh, the test results were taking a long time to come back, uh, seven to 10 days, which was a, a real frustration. Uh, but as the tests have become more available and more sites are testing, we're, we're typically getting them back in a day or two at, at the most now. And through our hospital here, we've tested 240 different people for the virus through our emergency department and inpatient areas and really haven't had the need to test that many more because I have a strong feeling that we've tested everybody that deserved to be tested. Okay. Thank you. Um, we touched on antibody testing a little bit earlier briefly. I don't know if anyone of the panelists would like to respond about research efforts that are being considered um, for, to screen for antibodies. Kevin, I wanted to provide a little bit of um, uh, input from our, our, our clinic's experience is not as uh, kind of robust as what you've heard from the hospitals and from Dr. Noel Bissell. We are very limited in the amount of testing that we can do, in part because of the lack of avail uh, availability of supplies. So in our Christiansburg office, we have just a handful of the swabs that we need and in spite of the orders that we place, we, we may order the test, but and get one or two swabs at a time. So we are pretty limited. But to follow up on what Dr. Bissell said, that it's, it is helpful to think of testing in the two major categories. The virus testing that answers the question, you know, do I have it? And the antibody, quest, the antibody testing that answers the question, did I have it? 
the problem with the antibody tests is they were all approved by the Food and Drug Administration under an emergency use authorization, which requires a lot less testing than they normally would subject a diagnostic procedure, a diagnostic test to. So there was a huge proliferation of antibody tests, many of which were really ineffective. So in addition to limited uh, accuracy of the tests, the next issue is we don't really know if having the antibody confers protection. It's safe to assume it does, we think, because most every other virus does. But as, again, Dr. Bissell pointed out, this is new. This, no one has seen this particular virus before. So it has yet to be seen whether or not the presence of antibody confers protection against uh, reinfection. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. Anybody else want to follow up on the antibody item? Kevin, I will say that um, the antibody test that the Harm Reduction Coalition is offering through our New River Health District testing sites is what we call a point of care. It's a little finger stick test and the results come back in approximately 10 minutes. Um, as Dave said, we're still trying to figure out the validity and the reliability. We try to put it together with the clinical picture. The biggest thing is that we're finding the antibody response to this particular virus is significantly delayed from what we would expect with a typical infection. Um, so that it's not gonna be, you're gonna often get a false negative if you test before 14 to 21 days after symptoms onset or the potential exposure. The other thing is that the antibody um, response almost has a bimodal where it goes up and comes down and goes back up. So we're learning a lot. So we do have some research partners um, through our universities as well that we work with. And there is another antibody test, which is a formal blood draw called ELISA. And um, there are some of those that have hit the market now. There are some university research labs which are developing ELISA tests. Um, which are um, felt to be a lot more reliable when actually looking for the antibody response. There are multiple antibodies that we're talking about. There's an antibody to what's called the nucleocapsid protein. There's an antibody to that spike protein that makes the virus, if anyone's seen pictures of it online, it's that spiky look. Um, and then the virus is also enclosed in what we call an envelope. And these ELISA tests can look at all of those antibodies. So we're just partnering because we have the benefit of some research universities right here in our backyard to look at, at, at how things are evolving and to look at the antibody responses to compare the point of care antibodies with the lab antibodies. Um, and, and it's just a great partnership to get our own information and, and figure out. And part of it too is seeing if those antibodies actually do confer immunity and neutralize the virus. Well, you mentioned our partnerships with universities and we're absolutely blessed to have them as partners here. Um, and there's recent partnership on testing. And you know, Dr. Bissell, can you talk about the turnaround time for testing and perhaps talk a little bit about partnership on uh, testing with the uh, Fraylin Research Institute? So yeah, as I think Bill alluded to, initially testing turnaround time was seven to 10 days or more um, through our commercial labs, which was what we mainly had. Um, that has come down substantially, but Virginia Tech uh, 
was able to, Fralin Research uh, Institute was able to get the authority and the approval to basically convert from a research lab to a clinical lab. And they are able to run the molecular test and they have a very good molecular test if you look at their results and, and the data that they provide. Um, and they're able to run it in Roanoke and they're able to run it in Blacksburg. And, and they have offered their services for our highest risk testing population that needs the most rapid turnaround. Um, so we can get results within 24 hours um, on the highest risk. Um, their capacity, they are just ramping up. So their capacity is a little bit more limited now, but they expect to have increase in capacity over the next several weeks. So what may take 48 hours right now will probably be down to 24 hours. A lot of our other testing, our community testing, where, where people are, are not symptomatic or are not super high risk, um, our commercial labs are down, as Bill said, to a one to two day turnaround as well. So we're in pretty good shape with our, our laboratory turnaround. Again, that depends on the lab's capacity and how many tests they get. As more and more places ramp up their testing and they get more and more samples, you're going to see that fluctuate. Okay. Um, we, we hear about the Abbott testing system and that it produces results within 15 minutes. Is there anything along those lines available in Newer Valley now? So the Abbott testing system requires a specific machine to run that test and, and we don't have that machine and I can, the hospital representatives can speak because I don't think they have the Abbott system. They have other systems as well. Um, so we don't have that in the New River Valley. I would say at Lewis Gale Medical Center in Salem, they have uh, a test that comes back in 45 minutes. So that's the, the shortest one I know of. We can get our tests up there and, and they can, get the test results in about 45 minutes. And so, uh, Kevin, we've got a similar system up at Roanoke Memorial. Um, it's the same one that uh, Lewis Gale's using. The challenge really is just the cartridges that are available for that um, nationwide. A lot of those are being diverted to the high, you know, the high impact areas, New York, um, you know, Richmond. So those are of limited supply to be used uh, um, they're, they're really more so time critical uh, specific cases. Thank you. Um, how can a citizen request a test for COVID-19? So in the New River Valley, we do all of our community testing through our call center. Um, and I, I don't have that number memorized right now, um, but we, we can get that posted. Everybody who calls the call center um, will be asked some screening questions. But as I said, right now, we're pretty much opening broadly that anybody who is interested in getting testing, we will go ahead and do the test. Um, I will say that young children, we, we really do uh, uh, look at those on a case-by-case -case basis because they tend not to cooperate with the swab and it can be pretty traumatic to them. So we are very careful about that. Um, but if they call our call center, we put the information in and we actually can generate an email, which is essentially their appointment, their ticket to come to the testing site. They come to the testing site, they have that email, they show it, they come in and they go through the driving. Um, as I said, it is the nasopharyngeal swab. So we do uh, request that there only be a maximum of four people per car. Uh, we do have nurses on both sides of the vehicle. So all four occupants can get swabbed. 
Uh, and then if, if there are folks that we are doing the, the finger stick testing as well, we have an area where they can pull off and get that done as well. Very good. Well, for those who need their um, public health call center number, it's 540-267-8240. And the hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., Saturday, 8 a.m. to noon, and Sunday, noon to 4 p.m. And if it's after hours, uh, leave a message. And I understand that you all are very prompt about calling back from, from those I've heard around the region utilizing the resource. Next question. Uh, Community Health Center, we're really limited in the amount of testing that we can do. So we are limiting to either folks who are symptomatic or have had exposure to a known COVID positive patient. But as a measure of consolation for people that don't have testing readily available, in the absence of a specific treatment for COVID, it and it's certainly a value for epidemiology to know, you know, how the disease is spread through the community. But where, it, as it boils down, we treat mostly based on symptoms, and so the the presence or of a positive test. If you're sick, you have to go get care. If you're well, stay home. Good advice. Thank you. Next question came in is as we move toward recovery phase and reopening, will there be enough testing for patients for elective surgeries, employees and employers? What is our testing capacity? Kevin, we're uh, going to make sure as we begin to do non-emergent operations and procedures at the hospital that every patient is tested so we'll know their COVID status. It's important to make sure that we're using the proper personal protective equipment, the PPE that we've heard all about these last weeks, and make sure that we uh, don't waste any of this, this PPE and know the status. And as part of our reopening strategy, we're going to have to test. And we, at this point, have an abundant number of tests and feel comfortable being able to do that. Uh, Dr. Charlie Bissell, what do you add to that? One of the other reasons for testing in advance is so that we can identify patients uh, that are COVID positive um, and stratify that to see if they really need to, you know, the risk for surgery. Uh, what we've talked about with, you know, Noel said is that the respiratory issues um, as well as the hypercoagulable state. And so the folks that are, uh, the patients that are COVID positive tend to have more uh, complications. And so that's, you know, another reason why we put their surgery off if, if it was in their best, you know, best interest. Uh, the other reason for testing is so that we also protect other patients in the hospital as well as our staff. Yeah, at Lewis Gale, I would agree. I mentioned earlier we have three different vendors. Uh, and, and Dr. Bissell mentioned some of them, uh, the supplies are in short uh, status right now. Uh, and so we don't use those for certain types of patients. Uh, we have started doing non-emergent uh, procedures at the hospital. We started this week and 100% of the patients are being tested 24 to 48 hours in advance. So we have the, the day before, we have the, uh, the results. Um, and, and so we ask the patients after 
they begin the testing process to isolate prior to, uh, and if there is a positive COVID patient, which we haven't had yet, but when that does occur one day, uh, that will be the physician's conversation about how do we make sure that the patient's safe and put, put off the surgery if it's not urgent, emergent, uh, to get it, the, the patient into the, the safest position to have the procedure. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why we have three different vendors and we can get next day results, two to three day results, and then that short test. Um, we use it for different types of patients. Okay. Is there a way to find out the daily number of tests that are being conducted within the Nero Valley? So the, the VDH website I know had the, the number of tests being conducted and I think they're doing some revisions to it to try and provide more data. Um, kind of piggybacking on what Dave said, the, the actual number of tests I, I don't think is as critical an issue as the fact that we're able to respond and we're able to offer the testing for us to look at disease prevalence, for us to take care of patients who are symptomatic and sick, and for us to do our contact tracing for our mitigation efforts. Um, and, and our testing in the New River Health District is going to vary widely by, day by day. Um, we are doing, like I said today, we did 137 out in Giles. Tomorrow we have some follow-up testing in some facilities that we need to go do. We have another testing site at Blacksburg High School on Friday, but it's uh, shorter, so probably won't do 100. Um, so it's going to go up and down. But again, the actual number is not so important as the fact that we're, we're getting the community testing, we're looking at our disease prevalence, we're doing the contact tracing and we're getting testing for our sick individuals. Um, but that is going to be on the Virginia Department of Health website again as they add those different, um, those different statistics. Very good. I'm not sure if the panel can speak to this, but there's been news stories about Virginia ranking pretty low among the 50 states about access to testing. And do you foresee that to increase in Virginia here soon? I think testing is definitely increasing in Virginia. Um, I, I can't speak for some of the other areas. Um, we're fortunate in Southwest Virginia that we were not one of the big hot spots to hit the area, like our Northern sections, Richmond are, are more urban areas. Um, so for them, they got caught kind of fighting the, the, the pandemic as it arrived on their doorstep while they were trying to secure testing. We had a little bit of advance notice and we were able to kind of put some of a framework into place. Um, I, I honestly don't know where we are as far as per capita testing and whatnot compared to other states. Everyone knows there were some glitches early on. I do know the state now has a task force that is actively engaged in securing the supplies for testing. Um, and then also securing the laboratory capacity. So we have the commercial labs, we have the, the Quest and the LabCorp. Lewis Gale actually is also contracting with a, another commercial lab out of, I, I think it's Tennessee. And then we have our research labs. So Freyland's come up and running. Um, University of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth, they were able to get some laboratory capacity up and running. And we have our state lab, um, the DCLS lab. And in the beginning, it was only doing the CDC administered tests and those supplies were very limited, but then they came up with their own test and they've increased their capacity as well. So um, where we rank and whatnot, 
I, I, I can't speak to that, but I do know that our capacity is markedly increasing. And it's not just the, the testing itself, the supplies to do the testing. And, and we've had some creative solutions to finding those things. Well, to change topic here from testing towards mental health. Uh, the sense of isolation related to working from home, the closure of so many venues that we rely on for personal interaction, you know, and the social distancing is really taking a toll on mental health. Are there options and services available to those in the community that need help? Kevin, I'm glad you uh, bring this issue up because I think that's one thing that people often kind of don't think about. You know, when you have a crisis such as this hit, your, your responses to that immediate need. And like I said in the opening remarks, we have folks out there that struggle with mental illness, uh, substance use issues, as well as developmental disabilities. And they, they still have those issues that need to be cared for and they need services for. In this time of a crisis, um, like you said, it's disrupted our professional lives, our day-to-day our -day routines, our family lives. We have families who are struggling with trying to figure out how to work, how to pay their bills, uh, how to provide childcare and, and do homeschooling all at the same time. And so that is a tremendous amount of stress. Um, I know that a lot of providers of behavioral health services have moved to telehealth services. Uh, so we can provide services to those who need it by connecting them through formats like we're doing now through uh, I guess a web-based platform, or we can do it through the phone lines. And in some cases, we still have clients coming into our clinics for services. So services are still available. And I would encourage people to reach out to a provider and just ask them what kind of options are available. I know that New River Valley Community Services has, has really tried to pour a lot of energy in getting the messages out through social media that we're still here and we're still open, whether that's providing services through telehealth or doing things in person, we will kind of assess that and, and make sure that we're taking uh, appropriate steps to ensure everybody's safety and well-being. So some things that we're doing online uh, or through WebEx or telehealth have changed how we do business but we're still here and we still want to make sure people's needs are taken care of because it's a very stressful time. And Kevin, we uh, have St. Albans here on our campus. It's a 36 bed psychiatric facility uh, that, that cares for the community. And we had to reduce our bed capacity because we didn't want to cohort patients with unknown COVID status together and spread infection. So we had to reduce the number of patients that we could admit to our psychiatric facility at a time, as James says, it's needed so desperately. But we've pivoted a bit. We're uh, doing a significant number of telemedicine visits. As I said earlier, we, across the clinical enterprise, have done almost 80,000 telemedicine visits. A lot of them has, have been for uh, our psychiatric patients and it's worked out fairly well. Our, our no-show rate is, is practically zero for that type of visit. And we've deployed uh, one of our psychiatrists in particular, Dr. Xavier Prude-Holmes, um, from the inpatient area to the emergency department. We had a, a, a person who was struggling on, on Friday afternoon. Dr. Prude-Holmes uh, got advance notice that he was coming into our emergency department, met him at the front door. 
uh, treated them in the emergency department in a private area. So we've, we've flexed, we've pivoted it a little bit and providing more outpatient care through the emergency department, admitting patients as necessary to the psychiatric facility, but really um, capped our beds to make sure that the patients are safe through that entire process. Kevin, we at the Community Health Center had a similar experience with uh, telehealth. All of our behavioral health uh, people are doing exclusively uh, telehealth visits now. We, we have the capacity. Some uh, patients with particular mental health issues don't uh, deal well with the camera. There can be suspicion issues and, you know, who else is listening to us? And those patients tend to do better face-to-face. -face, so we still have the face-to-face -face capacity. But as Bill noted, our no-show rate for behavioral health has actually decreased since we're doing telehealth because people can do it from, from their home. But it's a, this whole mental health issue that we're discussing is a predictable wave that follows disaster. Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey that said that 40 and 45% of respondents said that their mental health had deteriorated, and 19% of people said that it had deteriorated to a serious degree. Depression, anxiety, substance use, domestic violence, all of those things are uh, much, much higher uh, following events like this, even suicidality. So uh, we are... Um, We've just started, we do some uh, substance use disorder treatment and have started uh, an online group uh, that we're going to be launching. And we basically give advice just like we would to anybody else with, with mental health issues. You, you start with the things that you can control. You try to sleep well. You be careful of your diet, exercise, uh, and there are online resources. There's a, a website called uh, Headspace, which is a, primarily a mindfulness-based uh, approach to mental health. But there are a number of other uh, sites. Um, there are AA and NA meetings available virtually. So there really is a, there's a patchwork. And I can get you websites if there's some place we can send it to you for, for community, as a community resource. We can, those things for you. Kevin, I would just uh, want to add that if there's an individual out there or um, someone who's concerned about a loved one or a family member or friend who's struggling, I think, I think it's the mission of the task force to make sure that we connect folks with resources before symptoms escalate and reach a higher level. Um, we want to avoid those kind of crisis situations. Absolutely. And any resources that the panel sends along, we'll post those to the town hall website that I referenced earlier. I'm glad to hear that you all are making telemedicine services available and you're seeing the participation increase uh, significantly. It's such a valuable service. Um, James, with uh, New River Valley Community Services, you know, there's people that are quarantined at home right now. And do you all provide services for folks who are at home in quarantine? We are still providing services, like I mentioned earlier, um, to protect our clients as well as our staff. We will usually um, 
contact them before we make a home visit and do an initial screening just to see if they have any symptoms or they've had any concerns or been in contact with people that may have been exposed. And if they haven't, then we are uh, allowing staff to go out and provide services to them in their home. Um, if they uh, are um, in a situation where they may be contagious, then we are going back to telehealth services. Uh, in extreme situations, if someone's having a psychiatric emergency, we've been working with the task force to make sure that we can provide services to those folks to make, um, make every effort to get them the resources they need uh, to pre prevent them from going into like a psychiatric hospitalization. So we have, uh, like someone mentioned earlier, we have the PPE, the protective equipment that we can use for staff. And in certain cases, we, we might ask clients to use that as well if, if we're working with them uh, personally. Great, thank you. You know, at this time, we aren't able to get routine medical care and screenings. Now, how much longer will that go on? Is this person submitted the, the comment, they're concerned that there'll be an increase in diseases that are discovered too late for effective treatment, especially if routine cancer screenings are delayed much longer. That's a great point. I appreciated seeing that question in advance. And frankly, I've been worried that people are putting off care. Some of the cancer screenings and, and what have you, they can, they can wait a little while. But I worry about patients that have had chest pain and decided that their chest didn't hurt so much they should risk themselves going to the emergency department and becoming potentially infected. People have stayed away. I told you how dramatically our, our volumes have dropped. So I, I know that with our reopening plans, we'll be at about 50% normal capacity uh, in a week, a week and a half. That's phase one. Phase two will have us at about 75% of our normal capacity for these types of tests and screenings. And then hopefully shortly thereafter, we'll be at uh, near or uh, nearly normal levels of screening for people. But as Dr. Charlie Bissell said earlier, we have a scoring system for figuring out which patients are most urgently needing the services that, that we provide. But I hope that we'll get back to a normal level of screening and care for the routine things in fairly short order. And Bill, I can add that, you know, as we're doing that from the surgical side, in parallel, the uh, primary care are ramping up uh, their visits. Uh, they have taken a great advantage of the telemedicine, about 75% of the visits right now. They hope to get that up to 90. Um, and then as, you know, as we get more screening, testing, in uh, the PPE settled, uh, they'll, you know, they'll be seeing more folks that way. Radiology also is working in parallel. So, you know, we did the mitigation, we kind of tamped things down to kind of, just, you know, flatten the curve. And then now, you know, all of these things are starting to ramp back up uh, together. So it won't be, you know, it won't be immediate, but it's coming along. Kevin, we have a similar outpatient experience. We um, really do the screening on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, the, the, uh, I'm a gynecologist uh, by training. And pap smear intervals, as long as the pap is done in conjunction with human papillomavirus testing, that's a five-year interval for someone who's had a series of normal tests. So to ask that woman who's had, you know, regular testing to wait another three months 
that's not you know too much to ask. On the other hand, someone who's had a history of abnormal pap smears, you might you weigh the risk of her coming into the clinic and, and being exposed to somebody or leaving her home against the risk of her having an undetected uh, change in the cells on her cervix. So these really are made on a patient-by-patient basis. Same is true with management of chronic medical diseases. So for example, someone on blood pressure medication who's been stable on a particular dose for a very long time. We have just routinely extended and given them 90-day prescription. On the other hand, someone who has struggled with diabetes control, those folks may actually still be coming into the clinic. But it really is pretty remarkable what you can accomplish through a telemedicine visit. Yeah, and I think, I think the important piece here to mention is that people who need the care need to seek the care. Um, we are seeing people who are delaying care uh, from concerns coming into the emergency room or the hospital and then being more catastrophic when they end up receiving the care. Uh, at the hospital, we are open for all of the different types of screenings, uh, but we're working closely with our physicians to get the, the most important ones in. Uh, and so as we go through, we're open for surgery, but we're working with the physicians to have the conversation, what's important right now? And as we ramp back up, we're going to make sure that the, the people who need the care get it first. Uh, the urgent folks in the screening and the care get it next. Uh, and the truly elective folks, as we come on board, uh, are going to, we're going to be prepared to, to provide them care as well. I think another message that needs to come out is that we've, we've done a good job, both hospitals, all four hospitals in the area, in terms of protecting, you know, patients. And so, you know, patients should not be afraid to come to the hospital if they have a need. You know, if they're having chest pain, stroke symptoms, you know, abdominal pain, whatever it is, we can provide care safely, right? We have screening at the front door for folks coming in, and we can isolate folks that are, you know, potential COVID uh, persons under investigation. They go down one pathway, and we can separate that from the other folks that are, are not at risk and then protect them. We've got, you know, the universal masking. Um, you know, we've got a limited to no visitor policy, you know, based on exceptions. Uh, you know, the, you know, the social distancing. So all of those things are in place so that folks should feel safe to come to either one of the hospitals for their needed care. Uh, you know, if, if it's something that is, you know, like Dave was saying earlier, that if you're not sick, you don't need to go to a place where you put yourself at risk. But if you are having some, you know, some uh, symptoms, by all means, we're safe. Come and see us. Thank you. Billy, what are you seeing in the hospital? Well, that's, I'd just like to comment uh, based on what uh, Alan and uh, Dr. Bissell and others have said. Um, we're definitely seeing those patients that are waiting uh, sometimes too long to come to the hospitals, those patients with chronic diseases such as COPD or CHF. And we do have a safe environment in the hospital. I think it's important for people in the community to know that just um, that, that we're considering what we call PUIs or patients under investigation. We have casted a wide net to rule out patients for suspected coronavirus or COVID-19. So uh, we've been doing this for um, several weeks now. 
um, we've expanded our search. And so uh, those patients who do have chest pain with acute coronary syndrome or COPD or just a you know bacterial pneumonia, many, many other conditions, we can safely treat them uh, and uh, they'll get appropriate treatment and they should not worry about coming into the hospital and uh, being exposed to COVID-19. I will like to note too that um, in the Lewis Gale Regional Health System uh, now for a couple of weeks, uh, when we do have a patient who has confirmed uh, coronavirus uh, at Lewis Gale Hospital Montgomery at Pulaski and uh, Lewis Gale uh, Hospital Allegheny, uh, those patients are being transferred to uh, Lewis Gale Medical Center, uh, who they provide all the services that are needed to treat the patient. So we, you know, we have treated a few in the hospital, but we've been doing this now for the, the last couple of weeks as well, just to ensure further safety. So we're expanding a big net, capturing, ruling out those patients who uh, are negative. And if they are confirmed, then we're sending them to our sister facility uh, at Lewis Gale Medical Center in Salem. Just Great. to piggyback real quickly to Kevin on, on what Billy just said, I think it's important to note that while COVID is getting all the media attention and, and everybody, it's on their minds, in the New River Health District, only four and a half percent of the tests that we're doing are coming back positive for COVID. And that's including people who are symptomatic. So, you know, there are other pneumonia causes out there. They're not all COVID. Um, and people have to understand that. And certainly in other areas where the prevalence of disease, the hotspots where the disease is much more prevalent and they're focusing their testing on the highest risk, their percentage of tests coming back positive are gonna be higher but we're getting a pretty broad community testing program here. And, and I think we have a realistic number that you know, 96% of the time, 95% of the time, your symptoms are gonna be caused by something else. It sounds like the message is really that we're all still providing services. It may look a little different. So the best bet is for folks to call when they have concerns. Thank you, James, you nailed it. I have just a couple minutes left for our panel, and there's two topics I want to try to touch on before we wrap up. The first is about masks. And is it accurate that the benefit for a person wearing a cloth mask is primarily to protect others and secondarily to protect oneself? Also, how can the public be educated to wear a mask out of altruism, a visible sign for caring for others? So, yeah, I mean, you know, masking is mainly to protect other people. Um, we had gotten away from a, a lot of our public health um, responsibility to our community as far as covering coughs and sneezes and doing a good job with hand washing. So that mask helps protect if someone does cough or sneeze that, that those air droplets are not being spread all over the place. I mean, it does provide a barrier, so it, it of course can provide some protection, but by and large, the greatest protection of that kind of a mask is to protect other people. You know, and other cultures do this. You know, it may be one of the reasons why the Asian cultures were able to handle this better than, you know, others have. Um, when, you know, when someone's ill, say in Japan, they wear a mask to protect others. And hopefully, for just for social responsibility here in, uh, you know, in the United States, we can get to that. And that you know, it's not looked upon or frowned upon or you know, mocked. And it is, you're just doing me a favor by putting that mask on so that you're protecting me. It's the same thing with hand washing and coughing and you know, into the elbow and uh, 
just it's it's courtesy. Thank you. And Dr. Bissell, perhaps you can address this um, last item for us. And it's about uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline construction that's scheduled to resume. And there's been a couple of questions that were submitted about whether that's um, advisable for the community and uh, allowing a lot of out-of-state workers to come in when we're advised to stay at home at this point in time. So um, I think the first thing to note is that a lot of uh, pipeline workers have remained in the community. So they're still here. We have, we have other construction um, projects in the community where there are subcontractors coming in. The other thing is our state borders are not closed. Um, and we have people coming back and forth all the time, people who bring us our vital supplies, those trucks that are delivering to Kroger and our food stores, to Home Depot, to Lowe's, to, those folks are coming back and forth across state lines all the time. And, and we really can't restrict it. Um, as far as the pipeline goes, it is in the energy sector and that is considered an essential uh, service. It is a critical infrastructure service. So we have to be mindful of that. We, we ask of those folks, just like we ask of anybody else who is traveling, that they, they respect the, the public health guidance. And if possible, we would love to have them self-quarantine for 14 days or as long as they possibly can. We would love to have them follow um, the same recommendations that we're telling everybody else to limit, um, to limit those public interactions. If they're out and about in public, to wear a mask or to not be out and about in public if, if they are sick. Um, and, you know, fortunately, a lot of the work takes place outside where the risk of transmission is much, much lower. There is guidance on the VDH website for these sectors, and uh, our environmental folks uh, do provide a lot of guidance as far as those workers. Thank you, Dr. Bissell. Well, we're rapidly approaching the end of our one-hour program. I think everyone will agree the community has submitted some very thoughtful questions, which has spurred some informative discussion among our panelists this evening. And as we look forward, the task force is creating the playbook to help everyone in the New River Valley navigate the next phase, recovery. The series of our virtual town halls is your opportunity to continue that conversation. We invite you to join us each Wednesday at 6 p.m. If you're not able to watch live, the series will be archived on YouTube. Links will also be posted to agency websites and social media. The series will also be rebroadcast on local access cable stations, including Comcast and Shintel Channel 190 for Christiansburg and Montgomery County, along with Comcast Channel 2 in Blacksburg. Additional dates and topics include the following. May 13th, law enforcement, fire and rescue. May 20th, local government. May 27th, local and small businesses. June 3rd, education focusing on K through 12. June 10th, education focusing on colleges and universities. And before we wrap up this evening, I'd like to extend a special thank you to not only our panelists, but also those behind the scenes who are making the virtual town hall series possible. And they're the public information officers who serve local governments, agencies, and higher education institutions in the region. The program would not be possible without their contributions. So thank you all very much for joining this evening and be well. That concludes the recording of the first virtual town hall meeting. We hope you found it informative and will share it with others. We plan to provide these recordings after each meeting takes place. So we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. If you are interested in submitting a question for an upcoming meeting, visit montva.com slash NRV town hall.